New York federal judge denies Ghislaine Maxwell's motion for new trial, calling the jurors failure to disclose his history of sexual abuse a mistake. The Texas federal judge who was smacked down last month for preventing Biden's vaccine requirements for the military strikes again. Did he defy a Supreme Court ruling? Rhetorical question alert. The Supreme Court continues to gut the Voting Rights Act and permit rampant racism in Republican legislatures. What is going on? A federal judge in California says it's more likely than not that Trump engaged in obstruction of official proceedings on January 6th, calling Trump's actions a coup in search of a legal theory. The seven hour, 37 minute gap on White House phone logs. Does it show a guilty conscience of Trump? Rhetorical question alert. The DOJ expands its January 6th investigation and its staff. A week of consequential legal news. We are here to break it down, to cut through the jargon, to pierce through the BS. This is Legal AF. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak, recording live coast to coast. Popak, the Popakian. How are you? I'm How loving you like this intro? new. I'm loving this new intro. I mean, we're like artificial intelligence. We're actually intelligence because we are just evolving. You're artificial. I'm, I'm artificial. You're intelligence, but we are evolving week by week in a way that even the co-hosts find mesmerizing. I love that opening. Let's keep it. Let's keep it going and let's <laughs> get into the news. Popa, just let me make one comment. Are you in a different color room today? Last time it looked green. Today it looks teal. What, what's going on there? My goal is to gaslight my my co-anchor and just act like we're changing the color of the room. No, no, it's just the light thing on Zoom is making the color look a little bit different. It's the same tealy room that I was in last week. Ghislaine Maxwell's bid for a new trial is denied. Judge Allison Nathan, an Obama appointee for district court, now a Second Circuit Court of Appeals judge who was still presiding over this case, denied Ghislaine Maxwell's motion for new trial. The motion for new trial was filed because a juror named Scotty David, following Ghislaine Maxwell's conviction for sex trafficking, he kind of went on a media tour. He did media in Europe. He did media here in the United States. He talked about his history as a victim of sexual abuse and seemed to imply in these interviews with the media that that was important in his decision in ruling and finding uh, Ghislaine Maxwell guilty. Not only that, Michael Popak, but he seemed to also imply that he was encouraging other jurors to vote for guilt or just at least providing them with information. I think we all feel, I feel that she's very, very guilty and she deserves to rot in prison for the rest of her life. That's how I feel about it. But we still want the deliberations to be sacrosanct and you're not supposed to bring your own kind of personal experiences into the jury room and become an expert in substitution for actual experts and substitution for the actual facts that we're taking into place and taking into account. So Ghislaine Maxwell, after her guilty conviction, she sees these interviews, um, reaches out to the court, explains to the court that this is highly unusual and asks for 
a new trial. And indeed, Michael Popak, this was highly unusual conduct to occur in a jury room. Um, this Scotty David, he took the Fifth Amendment. He was given immunity by the government to testify. You know, when he took the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination, he testified in front of uh, District Court Judge Allison Nathan and was cross-examined on why he did or didn't say things in the jury questionnaire. Because the key thing here is that he did didn't write in his questionnaire that he was a victim of abuse. And it was one of the questions in the questionnaire, were you a victim of abuse? Um, lawyers have the ability to, on their own, strike jurors. And then you could also strike jurors, you know, with cause or without cause. You have a certain amount of what's called peremptory challenges on your own for any reason, unless they're like racist reasons or discriminatory reasons. You can just say, hey, I don't want that juror on my jury. Then there's for cause. Um, a person has a bias. They can't be fair in the case. I didn't didn't uh, answer the questionnaire. But here in the court's ruling, the court said that, you know, it seemed to be an accident. It seemed to be an unfortunate accident. The judge says that this juror would not be stricken for cause anyway. You know, and the judge also said, wouldn't we be setting a strange precedent here in all sexual abuse cases if you couldn't be on a jury if you were a victim of sexual abuse just for that reason? Popak, do you think the judge got it right here? I know you probably don't. We, we've talked about this case about a half a dozen times. I think at, at one point you you were definitely convinced that this was grounds for a new trial. I don't know if you I don't know if you've changed, but but look here, here's a couple of things. You, you got to let the federal judge do her job, and she did. She um, under oath, as you said, the Justice Department was considering prosecuting him, and this is where, this is where good lawyering comes into play. And you and I like to talk about it and and we like to admire and compliment good lawyering. So Todd Spodek, people know from the. Um, inventing Anna series about Anna Delvey, who represented her, got hired by Scotty David relatively early on in the case. And people were sort of scratching their head. Why does this guy need Todd Spodek? You know what? He, he navigated a very prickly situation for his client where he was able to trade, okay, I'm taking the Fifth Amendment. My client's taking the Fifth Amendment unless I get immunity on this issue. And I'll happily let my client testify. And they were able to work that out. So anybody that questions, why do we need defense lawyers? Why are defense lawyers important in an adversarial process? This is why, because Scotty David is not coming up on his own with the concept that he could trade with the Department of Justice, Fifth Amendment assertion for immunity. That's something that a, a good defense lawyer, knowing what he's doing, or her, she, she knows what she's doing, does for them. So he got in the box, sworn in. The very last act before she took her seat at the Second Circuit on the 30th of March is now Southern District New York uh, Judge Nathan interrogating him. He's He's got immunity, so he's free to say whatever he wants. And her, the results of that interrogation is her belief that it was an innocent mistake not to include on the jury questionnaire um, what um, that he was a victim of sexual abuse in the past. She did not, and you and I talked about this in prior podcasts, she did not delve into and she drew that line in the sand at the beginning of the entire process in telling the, the uh, lawyers what she wanted briefed, what was the issue she wanted to focus on. She was not going to get into the, the jury deliberation room. I thought 
and I think you did too at one point, she was going to bring in like all the jurors to find out if juror number 50 and his potential bias had infected the jury deliberations to undermine the Sixth Amendment right to a fair and impartial jury on behalf of Maxwell. She did not do that because she said three weeks ago or a month ago, I am not doing that. I am going to determine if in the voir dire, the jury selection process, there was um, uh, he is really biased, uh, Scotty David, made his way through the jury selection process through subterfuge because he he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, not the runaway juror. I forget what maybe the runaway juror to get on the jury. And she concluded that he made an innocent mistake and that just because he was a sexual assault victim in his childhood, that, of course, did not preclude him from being an unbiased juror in this case. And she did not move into the jury room to ask him, well, what did you tell the other jurors? And did you mention your sexual abuse and the recovery of your memories and all of that? That was a line in the sand and that was never going to happen. So all the defense was left with was arguing, had we known that Scotty David was a sex assault victim in his childhood, we may have or we would have used our peremptory challenge to remove him from the box. But that's not that's not necessarily Sixth Amendment privilege because that's only one of 12 and it doesn't and that doesn't matter. And what you would or could have done with your peremptory challenges is not often grounds for a mistrial or a reversal of a of a of a of a case under rule criminal rule of federal procedure 33. I like the outcome. I don't like the ruling is just how I feel about it. What I mean by that is. I genuinely feel, having followed this trial, having followed the situation, that Ghislaine Maxwell is guilty, as can be, that Ghislaine Maxwell deserves the maximum sentence. But I do think that all criminal defendants, anybody charged with crimes in the United States of America, deserves a fair trial. This was one of the most high-profile, if not the most high profile trial of the time and potentially of the year. You know, the fact that this juror said because he was waiting in a long line that that distracted him from reading and reviewing the questionnaire of a case of this magnitude. And the fact that the judge would not inquire about whether setting aside this case, just take it out of this case, because this case Obviously, the facts are such that we all want Elaine Maxwell to go to jail for the rest of her life because we know what was happening. But just the idea that a jury can go in, not answer. Imagine if this juror was on your case, would not answer the questionnaire truthfully, then potentially go into the juror room to deliberate on your life and liberty and to... Uh, use facts that you didn't even know about, that your lawyers didn't even know about privately in the deliberation room. And a judge says, we're not even going to inquire into those facts. We're not even going to ask about those facts. And then that could have led to you being found guilty for the rest of your life. It's a hard pill for me to constitutionally swallow, even if it's a harder pill for me to swallow, that that would mean that Ghislaine Maxwell should get a new trial. It's so hard for me to, to, to say that, but that's genuinely how I feel about the Constitution in this case. I don't believe that you just it's OK just to lazily go through a questionnaire 
And you know how you know you know how Popak. It also frustrates me that he then went to the media right afterwards, and so he didn't have enough time to read the questionnaire, but he had enough time to then give media interviews and go on a media tour, and you know, and set himself yeah. up to write a book. Like it's just not cool. So, so I I agree with you on the not cool factor. Firstly, it's it's grounds for an appeal, and I'm sure the issue has been preserved on appeal by the lawyers for Ghislaine Maxwell in front of Judge Nathan. I short-circuited this discussion today between you and me when I said she drew a line in the sand on not going into the jury deliberation room. That issue, that whether she should have drawn that line and whether she should have brought all 12 members of the jury in front of her to ask about the impact of that juror, um, uh, on the deliberation process is a grounds for appeal up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm sure that's one of the issues that the defense is going to raise. However, she believed as a threshold issue that if he, if his participation in the voir dire process, the jury selection process was not nefarious, but was innocent in the mistake that he made. And, and she grilled him and drilled him on his potential bias because she doesn't want to set the standard, and you don't either, I know, that a sexual assault victim who's not the victim in the case could never serve on a jury about a sex crime. That can't be the law, and that's not going to be the law after she's made her right. ruling. So, so we have that. The last thing that's important for people to know is I don't think we've ever talked about this. There is no bar, there is no ban on jurors following their service and once they are discharged from jury duty, even after, even if there's an appeal that's ongoing, they are free to talk to the media. They are, and they often do. They are free to go and talk. We might not like it. We might find it unsavory. But, you know, the media goes after them, tries to find one or two to give sort of salacious comments about the deliberation process or how it went down. So he was free to do that. I get your point that, sure, he was all ready to do that, but he never figured out how to successfully get through a questionnaire. And, I, and I'm sure he, in, in reading, I think he purposefully did not list that he was a victim of sexual assault as a, as a child. But you know what? Judge Nathan and doing the interrogation didn't believe that. And that's what mattered for this particular motion. Just we'll always give some uh, I always want to give uh, federal judge trivia out there or just to provide facts. And just some of the judges I explained to you that uh, Judge Nathan was an Obama appointee now on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals as a Biden appointee for that position. Judge Nathan is recorded as the second openly gay jurist on the federal bench after Deborah Batts, who was a Clinton appointee in 1994, who was sworn in during Gay Pride Week in June of 1994. But, but um, by the way, that is a that is a fascinating yet frustrating statistic that she's only the second openly gay federal jurist in 30 years. It's one of the reasons that I want to give those facts out there, because it is a complete head scratcher and definitely yeah. Definitely disappointing um, stat to talk about. Also incredibly disappointing to talk about is this ruling out of Texas. I guess it's not a surprise with Judge O'Connor, who's a, uh, is it George H.W. Bush or George no, w. Bush w. Appointee? He was a George w. w. Bush appointee. Um, he was the one who struck down uh, Biden's vaccine mandates for the Navy and for the military. Uh, the Supreme Court had to actually step in and the Supreme Court and, a, and Judge Kavanaugh, 
of all people stepped in and basically said, look, Article 2 says that the president is the commander in chief of the United States military. And if the commander in chief and his generals say that the military needs to get vaccines, we defer to the president, we defer to the military generals, and federal judges should not be intervening in those decisions. And so the Supreme Court basically said to this federal judge, with respect to decisions over uh, deployment of troops, assignment of troops, and other operational decisions regarding troops, you federal judge don't have the right to issue an injunction. We'll let this case go on to an appeal to the Fifth Circuit and then come to us, but you can't stop the president from making those decisions. So what does this federal court judge do to kind of poke his finger in Biden and the Supreme Court said, aha, what you did not mention is separation proceedings. In other words, disciplining uh, troops for not getting the vaccine. Separation is the first part of a disciplinary proceeding before right. discharging with, the troop with, for with, not right. complying with for not complying with orders. So what this judge did was kind of on his own, granted class certification, certified a class of plaintiffs of of Navy members who are suing it's about 4000 or so like military members suing Biden and basically said to Biden and said to the United States government, you can't discipline these troops for not getting the vaccine. You can't start that separation process, which would seem to even though the Supreme Court didn't directly address that issue, because that issue wasn't before it. The Department of Justice made a tactical decision based on the speed and the need. I wouldn't even say it was a tactical decision, like the, the lives of troops were on the line. So they wanted to make sure they dealt with the operational and deployment issues first before this rogue judge in Texas could force potentially troops with COVID infecting other judges. But this judge, I mean, infecting other troops, but this federal judge in Texas um, made this ruling and said, you know, President Biden, you can't uh, engage in any like adverse separation proceedings or begin those against, you know, troops for not complying with the chain of command. And he made like a very strange comment, too, in it. He said something like uh, military generals do not so quote. Generals don't make good judges, especially when it comes to nuanced constitutional issues. Is what you know, who, you know who he was quoting there? Who was he quoting? Himself from a month earlier. He actually What's quoted his here, own. He, he quoted his own case. That was a the Popak Popakians like to use a um, a hand symbol from Star Trek. This is another set of fingers. One in particular that the judge has um, focused on the Supreme Court telling them to go F themselves. So just to bring it bring it home here to square the circle, as, as we like to say, you've got the Supreme Court, the Justice Department made a tactical decision, and it was the right one, to bring only to the Supreme Court two weeks ago, a week ago, a, a narrow issue as it relates to operational effectiveness of the troops and the ability for the commanders to decide who is going to be deployed in the field for special missions and who isn't. And basically said a federal judge is telling the commander in chief and the department, the uh, secretary of um, the military, you know, secretary of defense 
and all the operational commanders in the chain of command what to do. And they shouldn't be able to do that. And that should be stay. That should be a partial stay of his order as it relates to not to the discharge issue that you talked about, but the Justice Department was very strategic about getting the Supreme Court to issue a stay of the vaccine mandate ban that this Judge O'Connor had rendered as it relates and as it tried to tie the hands of the commanders to deploy troops. Okay. So knowing that, O'Connor said, I'm going to do two things, as you said. I'm going to certify a class of 5,000 members of the military, all of whom have applied for religious reasons to be exempted from the mandate. And because I see the writing on the wall that none of them are going to get the exemption through the administrative process of the internal naval system, I'm going to declare that they are part of a class, that they've been injured, because they have or will be denied their religious exemption to a vaccine mandate. And I am also going to enter a preliminary injunction at the class action certification stage to prevent the military from implementing, the, the Navy from implementing five different naval um, operational orders, Trident order this, Navy command order that. I mean, specifically telling the Navy, you know, those operational, that operational book that you've created for readiness and effectiveness of the troops, I'm ripping pages out of it as a federal judge. And then to stick it back to the Supreme Court, literally, he said, except I'm going to stay the aspect of my injunction that is inconsistent with the ruling last week that says this can't be used for operational decision making. So the Navy will still be able to say, you, seamen, you, SEAL, you are not going on this mission. You need to stay at the base. But they will not currently, until the Supreme Court rules on this issue again, after the Fifth Circuit in Texas first rules, because that's that's going to be the path here. And, I, and we'll have to see what the Supreme Court, if they're, if they're going to get pissed off at O'Connor and say, we told you once before, you, you can't You shouldn't go forward with any aspect of the case or they're going to say, you know what? You found a narrow path to both comply with our order. This could be the ruling, Ben, but move the case along on the class action side. And so we're not going to touch your injunction. I don't think so. I think and I want to hear your opinion. I think the Supreme Court's going to say, no, you can't enjoin discharge either. We've told you the commander in chief of the armed forces under Article two of the US Constitution is the president of the United States, not a federal judge. And yes, we saw your cute little comment about, you know, who make terrible judges? Generals. I got it. And by the way, it's admirals when you're talking about the Navy. In any event, I think when it finally wends its way back up to the Supreme Court with Ketanji Brown Jackson sitting there, and I think if it was six to three the last time, I think it'll be six to three again that this judge has has effed up. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you, Popak. You know, you have to go back and the jurisprudence of, uh, you know, even the right wing bench is to put all of this power in the hands of the president and nowhere is the power of the president kind of even, you know, stronger even, you know, than in cases involving the United States military of military readiness, you know, of, of deployment issues. It's a it's one of these issues, though, where you see kind of the QAnonism 
you know, in and and this uh, United States Supreme Court is a radical right extreme court. Um, but there is still even kind of an extremer right wing fringe that exists out there where there are judges who believe that the United States president is actually not the commander in chief, that judges are have the ability to second guess president's decisions on issues like vaccine mandates. You know, it's just always very weird to me, Popak, too, that this judge, I've commented on this on Twitter this week, like this judge in Texas considers himself conservative. And I said, like, we can never call these people conservative. How could it be a conservative position? One, to say that people shouldn't like take personal responsibility over themselves, their families, their communities to get a vaccine that's like proven to work in the medical community. And then how are you imposing as a judge which is like the most activist thing you can do, telling the president what he can and can't do with troops. I mean, his prior order literally ordered, ordered the prior order, which the Supreme Court said no, ordered Biden to deploy unvaccinated troops who could then potentially infect other troops. And while our troops are abroad and there is a wartime footing going on with what's going on with Russia's unlawful invasion, of Ukraine to have rampant COVID outbreaks amongst our troops. I mean, it is the strangest, most vile of rulings that exist. I say strangest and most vile of rulings that exist. But then, Popak, we go to what's going on with the Voting Rights Act and the erosion of the Voting Rights Act. For longtime Legal AF listeners, you know, we've we focused on the intricacies of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because it's one of the most consequential things of the moment right now as the radical right legislatures are passing legislation to suppress the right to vote, specifically in black and brown communities and as right wing radical legislatures and you know, through radical right, you know, governors who are approving it are gerrymandering districts in ways that are completely and utterly racist. And they're kind of getting away with it in the court system, not kind of, they are. And so, you know, what, what's going on here? We have the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and section two of the Voting Rights Act, one of the most important of acts one of the most important sections. And it says no voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of their right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color or in contravention of the guarantees set forth in 1973 B. So basically, the Voting Rights Act says, you know, states can't make racist gerrymandered maps. You can't, you know, suppress the right to vote based on race. You can't engage in that conduct. As it relates to kind of gerrymandering, there was a process that was in place um, called preclearance, federal preclearance. And this was found in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And preclearance meant that either the Department of Justice 
or a panel of federal judges would have to approve maps provided by state legislators to determine if the map was fair, if the map was not racist. So the burden was actually on the states not to do racist maps because they were going to be reviewed by the DOJ or this federal panel. Well, what happened was in 2013, this was a history of radical right-wing judges. This is a plan that took place through the Federalist Society. This has been going on for a long time. We're now seeing the impact of decisions that were very strategic and planned by these radical right people. This case, Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, struck down the factors that could be analyzed for preclearance. And so for all purposes, what that meant is since the factors were struck down, preclearance was struck down since the factors themselves were deemed to be unconstitutional. So this is the first time since uh, there was a new census that was taken where legislators have been engaged in gerrymandering without preclearance. And so the burden has now shifted away from the legislators, um, away from them to justify their maps to civil rights groups who have to challenge whether a map is racist or whether a map is not racist. And so that's a very hard burden, especially when federal courts have applied a doctrine that they call the Purcell theory, um, which is based on a, I think it's a 2006 Supreme Court case called Purcell versus Gonzalez, I think it is, which says as you get close to an election, the Supreme Court shouldn't or courts shouldn't be able to make any rulings about the maps. Well, by the time you're done gerrymandering, you're pretty close to an election. And so you have Republican legislators who now view this as a free pass for them to do racist maps. And they say, challenge me. Oh, and by the time you challenge me, guess what? The Purcell theory, it's too late. We're now at the election. My racist map gets to, you know, my racist map gets to hold. And even where federal courts have stepped in. I mean, like in Alabama, in Alabama, you had a three court panel look at what the Alabama legislators gerrymandering did there and said, look, you created one district, just one district um, that represented the black population in the state. Um, when there was about 30% of the state, it has a black population and they're only represented in one of like the seven districts. You have yeah, to it was at least 12 create... percent representation for a 30 percent minority in the state. And there were even two Trump judges on that three judge panel who said this was this was too extreme. And the Supreme Court stepped in there in Alabama and basically utilizing the Purcell rule and the Purcell theory. And they were like, hey, too close to the election there. Um, we're going to let the legislators map hold. We don't we're not going to defer to what this district court judge said. And they kind of selectively apply the Purcell rule when it benefits them, you know, when it doesn't benefit them, because here in Wisconsin and talk about this Wisconsin case, the Supreme Court out of nowhere didn't apply the Purcell rule. They just wanted to stick their thumb in the Wisconsin legislator and the Wisconsin Supreme Court because there uh, a map was established that created this extra district. I think it was an assembly district. It wasn't a Congress district, but it was an assembly district. 
people didn't even think the Supreme Court was going to get involved in this Wisconsin case from this week. But the Supreme Court struck down kind of in violation of even like their own rule of the Purcell theory because the map was established. And the state and everyone said, look, Supreme Court, if you meddle with our map now, you're going to create chaos in our election process. But the Supreme Court didn't care in this recent Wisconsin case. So I hope that background was helpful to our listeners and viewers and understanding like the history of the Voting Rights Act and what's taking place and why it's so consequential. But Popak, break down this case. Well, look, you're you're right about Purcell and it's troubling and it's obvious and it's transparent that every time the supermajority on the Supreme Court want to meddle in weakening and diluting Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, um, they they will use Purcell as a shield or a sword to do that. There's no other explanation. I mean, in the last two months, they've found almost the same amount of time between the next election and the map to be either too early or too late. And it's almost the exact same amount of time, just depending upon when they get the vote. Sometimes they find it too early. Sometimes they find it too late. It's whenever they want to meddle. It's usually when a Republican map is at risk or the Republicans are challenging a map. In in Wisconsin, they've kicked it back, uh, the majority of the Supreme Court, with a direction basically to the state Supreme Court of that state of Wisconsin that normally under normal circumstances at any time other than now, what the Supreme Court had done in the past based on precedent is to allow the state and the state Supreme Court to make these kind of rulings. Now, they have no problem, as you've said, monkeying around with all of these issues, diluting the Voting Rights Act. So they've told the state Supreme Court, come back to us after you have looked at whether a race neutral analysis would have led to a better allocation of the map rather than adding plus one because there's been an increase in the black population in Wisconsin, which is what the what the Supreme Court of Wisconsin did, saying reflecting that we have more black Wisconsin residents, there should be a plus one in terms of a district. And they said, no, no, do it under a race neutral theory, because to the supermajority of the Supreme Court, who believes they are colorblind. And now since 1965, there are no states, as you mentioned earlier in the segment, Ben, there are now no states that need preclearance before they do their gerrymandering and their redistricting. Even ones like Alabama and others who have historically, Mississippi, who have historically used gerrymandering uh, to deny voting rights of minorities, primarily black Americans. And the Supreme Court now says, no, no, we live in a race neutral world. We don't need critical race theory. We, We can be colorblind. There doesn't need to be affirmative action. We can just let the chips fall where they are. You don't need to teach anti-racism because it's not a racist country. Ben, there's no racism. I'm sorry. Where did what America did you wake up in before we podcasted, Ben? There is no racism in America if the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court is to be believed, there is no longer any racism. We all know (laughs) on this, all our fellow travelers on this podcast, and you and me know that that is a bald faced lie. Um, uh, but but it is it is the persistent doctrine and dogma of the Federalist Society and of the people that are in the supermajority on the Supreme Court 
And this is and this is the manifestation of it when you throw it back to a Wisconsin and you say, no, no, we don't like the fact that you've adopted a map that reflects your the, the color of your population. Do it again and do and it. So race there they don't like you. In, they don't like what the legislator and the Supreme Court did in Wisconsin, where there they tried to create a fair map based on the demographic composition. But when the legislators like in Alabama or in Texas create the racist maps, inherently racist maps, what the Supreme Court is saying, district court judges, federal judges, it would be racist of you judges to challenge the racism of the legislature. You judges shouldn't consider race, but the leg let the le the legislators got it right. We just got to be deferential. But we know the legislators are carving these maps to deprive black and brown communities of representation. That is what is going on here, folks. The Supreme Court, look, justice is supposed to be blind, but it's not supposed to be bound, gagged, and with cotton stuffed in its ears. And I don't know what, what society the Supreme Court lives in, but they've turned our culture and reality on its head. It is now completely upside down in terms of what the court should be doing. And I, you know who I feel, I don't feel sorry for him. I was almost said I feel sorry for him. Roberts in 2013, when he was, when he presided over a Supreme Court decision and a Supreme Court that even then completely diluted the Voting Rights Act and left only standing section two, which you and I have spent a considerable amount of time on all podcasts talking about, that racially discriminatory voting practices are prohibited. He said to the people that objected to the decision that ripped apart the other aspects of the Voting Rights Act as being unnecessary. We don't need it anymore. We live in a race neutral society of his making. He said, don't worry, don't worry. And I'm paraphrasing. Section two, section two is still there. That's the bulwark against race discrimination in America. Don't worry, section two. And now what's happened? Now he's lost the he's lost his hold on the Supreme Court, as we've spoken about in prior uh, podcasts. He now has right wing people that that adhere to the Clarence Thomas wing of the of the party and of the of the Supreme Court. And now they've said, OK, we have shrunk the Voting Rights Act down to Section two. Now we're going to drown Section two in the bathtub. And that's exactly what they've been doing. And we're just seeing it writ large in cases like in Wisconsin. And now you have, as you as we've spoke, spoken about before we started um, in New York, they all ran into a federal judge in Steuben County. I've lived in the New York, New Jersey area my entire life. I have I, I could not tell you where Stu, I'm sorry, where Steuben County is, but a Steuben County federal judge has ruled that the Democrats who are in charge of the legislature in, of course, a blue state like New York, oh, their map, their map that would have flipped four districts, including that of, of Elise Stepanek or Stepanski, whatever her name is, that's now the number three for the Republican Party in Staten Island. She would have lost her seat because, look, to the winner goes the spoils. And, you know, the Democrats won the state of New York as they win every year. And they decided, hey, let's help the midterms. Let's get a few more districts in the Democratic side. And as long as it's not racially based, that seems that used to be OK. 
And instead you've got, you know, and again, her making the same mistake we we tell our listeners and followers not to make. The New York Supreme Court, oh, actually he was a state court judge. I said federal, he's a state court judge. She said, the New York Supreme Court has ruled that these maps are unconstitutional. Yeah, it was a lower level trial judge. And now it's gonna go to the Court of Appeals uh, ultimately for the, you know, uh, ultimately for the state of New York. But it, it just goes to show you what, what you're allowed to do. And I know it sounds a little bit weird, but if you're in the majority, and you run the state legislature, you're allowed to carve up your map in a way that does not benefit your opponent, whatever party is not in power, as long as it's not racially motivated. So where the Steuben County New York state judge is getting off by saying, oh, you made four more Democratic seats. Yes. And they're allowed to do that as long as it's not right. You know, Elise Zaponsky is, is a white lady from from Staten Island. She doesn't have Voting Rights Act protection. I like that you call her Stepanski. <laughs> what is her? What is her name? I think it's Stefanik. Stefanik. It's Elise okay. Stefanik. Stepanski. We have a lot to discuss on Legal <laughs> AF. We're going to be talking about a California federal judge's ruling saying that it was more likely than not that Trump committed a crime. I mean, duh, we all saw we, we know what he did on January 6th, but it's great to have a federal judge say it. We should talk about the implications of that seven hour and 37 minute gap and whether it shows a consciousness of guilt. I think it obviously does. And let's talk about the DOJ expanding its investigation and increasing its staff relating to January 6th. But first, a shout out to our partners. First, Athletic Greens. Everybody knows that I love Athletic Greens. You've seen the before and after photos of me and the before photos of me. I was taking vitamins and I was taking the gummies and I was taking the pills and I thought I was getting the nutrition that I needed. I thought I was getting the ingredients I needed, but not the case. And then I discovered Athletic Greens. Everyone knows what I do. I take that beautiful green powder. I scoop-de-doop-de-de the power. I loop-de-de-loop-de-de the power in the cup. I shake-de-shakey. I drink that Athletic Greens and boom, I got all the ingredients I need to supercharge my day. Day, right. With one tasty scoop of AG1, it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. As the research changes, so does AG1. And while most nutritional products still Stay the same. Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve its product AG1 based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade alone. It's lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it's for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. So join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first-timers, and everyone in between who are taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. And that's what legal AFers love. I love seeing all of you posting your photos with athletic greens and showing the improvements and gains that you've made 
in your day, your energy, and your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply. Let me repeat it again. A free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today, visit Athletic Greens, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S dot com slash Legal AF today. Again, visit athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF and take control of your health and give A-G-1 a try. And this podcast is also brought to you by Light Stream. Are you tired of paying high interest rates on your credit card debt? Check out Lightstream. I know how frustrating it can be like to feel like your credit card debt is getting in the way of your big life goals. Look, we've all been there before. And this credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream can help you pay off those credit cards fast and keep more money in your pocket in the process. Lightstream makes the process super simple. You can get your money as soon as the day you apply. A lot of people don't realize this, but credit cards can have a terribly high interest rate. Even if you've got excellent credit, your APR could be 20% 30% or even higher. So stop overpaying and take control of your finances with Lightstream. Lightstream believes people with great credit deserve a great rate. And that's just what they give you. Loans range from $5,000 to $100,000. You can roll your credit cards into one low payment at a fixed rate as low as 4.98% APR with auto pay and excellent credit way lower than most credit cards. Think about that. You can lower your credit cards one low payment as 4.98% APR. If you've got a lot of credit debt that's been hanging around for a while, you might feel stuck with high rates. But with Lightstream, you've got an option that actually works for you. They can help you free up all the money you're spending on interest and put you back in the driver's seat. The process is so fast. You can get your money and pay those credit cards off as soon as today. Apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. Just go to lightstream.com slash legal AF. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash legal AF. Subject to credit approval rate range from 4.98% APR to 19.9% APR and include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash legal AF for more information. Popak! Popak, I might be po- federal judge. I might be Popak. I might be Popak. But you're like when you talk about AG1, you're like Popeye. I'm expecting you to get a can of spinach and put it into your pipe and Popeye. like show off your it's muscles. Like AG1, light stream, AG1, light stream. Jesus. Judge, Judge Carter, Judge David Carter. I told you, my man, ju- federal judge Carter's not my man. I can't say that because he'll be like, what are you saying on did your you, podcast? Did you know something about, I want to ask you, as I looked him up because you, you've, you've been raving about him, besides the fact that he was a Marine. D- did you know, and I remember this, do you remember his claim to fame in the 1990s just to show you how much of a maverick he is as compared to the other judge we spoke about earlier? Do you know what he, do you know what he's infamous for or famous for? Tell me about it, Bobak. He had criminal defendants um, that were in his courtroom who refused to respect the decorum of the courtroom and were busy spewing profanities and wouldn't respect the courtroom staff. He had them duct taped. He had he had the bailiffs and the personnel duct tape them while they while he was in their courtroom. Of course, the ACLU didn't like that either. But it just shows you 
This <laughs> this is not a judge to be trifled with. Former Marine, former Leatherneck. He's going to call it like he sees it. And he's just the kind of judge appointed, I think, by um, who was it by Clinton? Yeah, it was a Clinton by, by Clinton that we needed in, in this in this dire time. So tell us about it. So this relates to the Judge Eastman's refusal to turn over records. No, he wasn't a judge. Professor I Eastman. Judge, a profe- profe- <laughs> the least judge. This relates to um, John Eastman, not Judge Eastman. John right. Eastman. <laughs> My J's. Relates to, stays in the pot. Relates to John Eastman, who is President Trump's lawyer, apparently, and Judge Carter, the actual federal judge, accepted for the sake of argument in the brief that uh, John Eastman was um, Trump's lawyer. Um, John Eastman spoke uh, at the insurrection. He was an insurrectionist, is an insurrectionist. We saw it with our own eyes. And a Clarence Thomas federal clerk, according to Karen, our co-host, she's right. He must have been in the first class of clerks. I thought he'd be too... Because the guy's like pushing 70. Eastman, I was, thought, a Clar- Eastman was a Clarence clerk. So that's where you I, learned about insurrection. I Right. I mean, he literally was one of the first clerks for Clarence Thomas. And now he's whatever he is now. He was a he's a professor. At, he was a professor at a law school, small law school in Southern California. But anyway, his records were subpoenaed by the January 6th committee um, because he's based in California. He sought an injunction to stop. Uh, the January 6th committee from getting his records. There was a case filed in the Central District of California in the Southern Division in Orange County. That's where John Eastman lives. That's where Chapman uh, Law School is around. Judge Carter was the assigned judge. Uh, Upon being assigned, Judge Carter basically said, look, there's a ton of these documents that are clearly not subject to any attorney-client privilege. That was the claim John Eastman was making. I don't have to turn over records because I'm Trump's attorney. I'm protected by the attorney-client privilege, which says communications between attorney and client in furtherance of litigation um, are privileged communications that no one should be able to see. It's a sacrosanct relationship between attorney and client. There's lots of other privileges, but let's focus on the attorney-client privilege for now. But Judge Carter said, these clearly aren't privileged. Turn them over. Um, so immediately. And so John Eastman turned over uh, those records immediately. And then after that, there was a subset of about 111 or 113 documents. And Judge Carter said, you know, John Eastman, you could brief why you think these are subject to attorney-client privilege. Government, you explain why you believe you should get these documents. And so that was briefed. And then this ruling was a ruling that basically said 97% of the documents, I think it was 101 of the 111 documents, need to be turned over. There was a very small group that the judge said, fine, you know, those are either, you know, these are like random documents anyway that don't even matter. But sure, you could have attorney-client privilege over those, irrelevant really. But what the judge found in ordering these documents to be turned over, though, Um, is that there was an exception to the attorney-client privilege. And that exception is called the crime fraud exception, where an attorney can defend a client who's accused of a crime, but the attorney cannot go about committing the crimes with the client or attempting to commit the crimes. It's not just, we've said, 
Good. Finish. And then I'll tell you where I was gonna say, you don't have to actually even achieve the goal of the crime, planning the crime, plotting nor know, nor know about it. It doesn't often turn on the lawyer. It's it's that the client, sometimes a lawyer and client are in cahoots. Yes. And that's one subcategory of crime fraud exception. But the crime fraud exception applies even if the lawyer is not aware that he's being used by the client to facilitate the crime or the fraud. If at the end of that, he says, hey, Bill, uh, my lawyer, um, so does uh, does uh, this country have extradition? Uh, and he says, I, I'll look it up. No, it, they won't extradite uh, for capital cases. Oh, OK. And then the guy goes off and commits a crime. That communication, which would normally be privileged, even if the lawyer didn't question, why are you asking me about extradition, Bill? Or whatever. I, I lost track of who's the client, and who's the lawyer. But that communication would be disclosed to the court, to the other side, because it wouldn't be covered by attorney-client privilege because the client is trying to commit fraud and crime there. I just want to make sure we're clear on how that works. Judge Carter says in his ruling that what occurred on January 6th, what occurred between Eastman and Trump is a coup in search of a legal theory and said that it is more likely than not that Trump engaged in obstruction of an official proceeding. That was the analysis towards the end of his ruling. You go through the ruling, you know, like the first 10, 12, 15, whatever pages of it are kind of like just dense and a little bit boring. Then you get to the bottom of the ruling and Judge Carter makes a clear look. What I'm presiding over is a dispute over discovery is a dispute over turning over records. I'm not here to judge a criminal proceeding. I'm not here to judge a civil proceeding. There ultimately should be accountability, but I think he wanted to message to the public that I'm not the person, that's not the issue before me, but let me analyze for you what's taken place here is what you know. Judge Carter basically says when he breaks it down. I am ordering these documents to be turned over. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the rule. I'm ordering these documents to be turned over to the January 6th committee because I am making a finding that more likely than not, Trump, the purported client here, was engaged in criminal activity. And it was clear to me that that's what was taking place. That's a powerful statement coming from a federal judge and a respected federal judge. First time in history. First time in the U.S. history, 230 years a federal judge has, under any standard, has accused a, a president while he was in office of committing a felony and an obstruction charge. Now, a couple of things. One's, one's rhetorical, one's a question for you. Why don't you think, since this was set up as Eastman versus Benny Thompson and the Jan 6 Committee, those are the parties. Trump never intervened in the case, as as we know, as lawyers, and as we'll teach our legal efforts, the privilege of attorney-client privilege is held by the client, not by the lawyer. The client has to do conduct, has to have committed something that waives the privilege. In this case, participating in the crime fraud exception with his lawyer under that subset of the lawyer and the client were both conspiring to commit a crime. That's that's the that's the easiest subset of crime fraud exception. But the privilege is held by the lawyer, by the client. Sorry. Why do you, I have a question for you? And I haven't seen this talked about anywhere else or in the media. Why didn't Trump intervene to make an argument, to file a brief? And if things went awry like they have here, to be a party for the appeal. Why didn't he? 
I think there's two explanations. You know, one is he's just not paying attention to it, which sometimes Occam's razor. He missed this one? <laughs> not that he missed this one. I mean that it's just not, you know, he's not exactly surrounded by the greatest legal advisors. So that's true. You know, so there could be. He should watch Legal AF more. You know, or he could be being advised, look, you know, you don't want to intervene here because if you intervene, you could subject yourself to an evidentiary hearing potentially, and you may be called to take the witness stand about January 6th. And, you know, maybe you just kind of stay out of it. That's so exactly the that, reason. Your, your, your last it. reason is exactly right. He, he has to, Trump cannot now reverse course and admit the following. I surrounded myself with moron lawyers, two of which have now been disbarred, who were pumping me full of bad advice and letting me bury my head in the sand. You can't admit that because now he's facing criminal prosecution, which we'll hopefully we'll talk about before tonight's podcast is over with the Department of Justice and in other places that we've talked about possible we're, criminal no, prosecution. Oprah, we're going to talk about it next. Popeye, no, no, I know. But I mean, I know. Yeah, but I don't know what we're going to say once we get there, I guess is what I meant. So he he now his only defense to all of these things is that I didn't have the criminal intent. I couldn't form the criminal intent. I didn't have mens rea, as we talk about it, because I was surrounded by these lawyers and they're all lawyers. They're all members of the bar at the time, even though Giuliani and Powell aren't now. Um, but I got all of this at, and Eastman. Eastman will probably soon be disbarred. But I got all this advice about I was doing the right thing in the Electoral College Count Act of 1887. It was unconstitutional and all of this. And so I never I can't be a criminal because I had I had uh, pure heart and pure mind. So he can't. I think you're right. He can't intervene in these things. A, subject himself to possible testimony or depositions. And B, he's got to act like, I don't know, I was relying on John Eastman. He looked like, a you know, he had a bow tie. He was a law professor. He seemed to know what he was talking. He wrote ben memos. Ben thought his name was Judge Eastman. You know, eh. Ben thought he, Ben elevated him. He, <laughs> by the way, scared the crap out of our audience. Trump wins again. We're going to have Eastman on the Supreme Court if there's another opening. So be careful. Um, anyway, I think he, he, he has to continue to double, triple, quadruple down Trump on the big lie. That's why he tweeted after this, you know, the big lie. It's the big lie. I believe that he's got to continue to promote this every way, shape and form, because he's got to stay in that lane of I don't have mens rea. I really believe my own bullshit. And you're saying mens rea just for people. And that's literally spelled mm -hmm. M-E-N-S space R-E-A mens rea, which refers to criminal intent, which the literal translation from Latin is a guilty mind, you know, which is uh, required. The state of mind is a requirement in most crimes. And, yeah. you know, and here, well, there's some things that are strict liability that just do it. But it's very, but it's very, very, very rare. But but yes. But here, um, Trump's to Popak's point is saying, I don't have criminal intent. I didn't have any, um, you know, I, I didn't have the, the requisite mens rea because I thought what I was doing was right. I didn't have a consciousness of guilt. And that's one of the jury instructions that federal prosecutors. And his like first firewall. Yes. And his first firewall is look at the law firm that I assembled, the law firm of Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, John Eastman et al. 
That was my law firm. And look at that brain trust. I relied on them. They told me all these cockamamie theories and QAnon based theories about the U.S. Constitution, the Electoral College Count Act of 1887. And what I'm a layman. I believed all of it. I, I'm the president. Uh, I only did what they told me to do. That's that's going to be if he ever gets in a box prosecuted, that is going to be his defense, ladies and gentlemen. But what would rebut that defense? We've heard the seven hour and 37 minute gap in the records of his the official White House phone records, you know, which are supposed to document and show all of the calls that were taking place, you know, uh, by the president of the United States. Um, that's supposed to be documented under the Presidential Records Act. We know that Trump was on phone calls during the insurrection. How do we know? Well, we've heard from people like Kevin McCarthy and from Jim Jordan and from others that they had conversations with him. Because the there's been 800 people that have testified before the Jan 6 committee. Yet they're on the phone records. Now, let me be clear. It's not like, and this is CNN to this report, which just drove me crazy. They're like, well, actually, <laughs> the paperwork is there. We have the records. Yeah, the literal paper is there. Like we have the document itself, but it is missing the phone calls on the record. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't understand this. Thank God for Bob Woodward. You know, and, and all presidents must shake their fists like Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward in his pushing 80s broke the story in the Washington Post that there is a gap in the in the White House phone log, not the recordings. I don't want people to think this is audio recordings in the written log about every call the president's supposed to make, which has to be recorded, as you said, under the Presidential Records Act. Um, there is a gap from 1117 until 654 in the evening, the day of the insurrection which is almost the entire insurrection. And CNN's reporting is what, Ben? CNN ran a story that basically said, like five people who wrote the story, they needed like five writers, apparently. We've seen the logs and the logs, the paperwork all exists. Like as though what CNN, CNN was trying to basically say like the logs are actually there like the log is not missing the piece of paper during that time period which was the not books the point. there but there's no entries the, from 11 exactly <laughs> he ordered a yogurt in the morning and he called dan scavino at 655 and the entire thing in the middle is missing and we know from reporting and from the jan 6 committee that he made at least seven phone calls we also know you guys talked about it on the brothers pod we know there's groups that use burner phones at the at Trump and his minions direction. We know that the um, Jan 6 planners and all of these QAnon right wing proud boy groups were told when you call Eric Trump, when you call Mark Meadows, when you call the people in the Willard Hotel command center for President Trump, use a burner phone. So you and I, I've never gotten a call on a burner phone. I don't know how it turns up on your on your caller ID. I, I know it doesn't say burner phone. But I'm sure like Eric Trump doesn't just randomly pick up a phone that he doesn't know where it's coming from or if it says blocked or unknown. He knew to pick it up. He knew they were using the burner phones, which gets back to where you're going with consciousness of guilt and the missing pages. So there is a jury instruction that the jury gets when a prosecutor is trying to show the guilty state of mind, which covers consciousness of guilt. 
And the jury instruction states, quote, if you believe that the defendant sought to conceal evidence, then you may consider this conduct along with all the other evidence in deciding whether he, she thought he, she was guilty of the crime charged and was trying to avoid punishment. In other words, if Trump didn't think he was guilty, if Trump thought he was just following the advice of his lawyers, if Trump thought that he was engaged in legal conduct, not illegal conduct, he would have put the injuries of everybody he talked to on, on his logs. But the fact that he kept it from the logs shows he has a consciousness of guilt. An innocent person does something. An, an innocent person does not conduct themselves this way. And the jury can use that to determine whether the person's criminal intent is present. Exactly. And Popak, I think that the evidence is mounting and mounting, both the actual hard evidence of what is in front of both the January 6th committee now and the DOJ and their investigation and the missing information showing a consciousness of guilt. The DOJ needs to step up now. And here's the thing, though, to give them credit, I think that what we see is they're doing that. We see they are, though. It, and I know, I know, I know it's going slower than everybody wants. I just want to put this in context. It is the most complex and the most uh, work intensive, like a, a, a prosecutorial effort in the history of the United States, period. And especially it being run and the, the, the ultimate perpetrator um, is the former president of the United States as well. But yeah, it's fraught with political issues on top of that. And to prosecute that, just the sheer amount of people is, uh, you know, is difficult. Popak and I, on an earlier legal AF, we said that one of the things that the DOJ should do is staff up and hire more people. And sure enough, in a recent budget they submitted, um, they did that, you know, and asked for tens of millions of dollars more to hire about 120 or 130 um, more lawyers and staff to help prosecute these cases. Um, and they've also signaled that they are expanding the investigation to not just to the people who were there that day, um, but also to the financial planners, financial backers, um, and for those who aided and abetted, even if they weren't there that day. And so that is a sign. And they're doing what prosecutors are supposed to be doing. They are starting from the bottom. They've, they've been rising and increasing um, uh, the investigations to then have more senior level people. Um, they've got their first conviction in trial. They've increased the type of charges, charging people with sedition now, you know, and charging people with uh, trying to overthrow the government and planning to overthrow the government. And when Merrick Garland was asked the other day, you know, have you seen reports on CNN about this and that, you know, he answered basically, look, I'm not, you know, uh, we're going to follow the law and we're going to, you know, ultimately that's what's guiding me in this investigation. So I do think though, they are moving in the right direction. They're moving more slowly than most people like, but I mean, we're, we're in 2022. I mean, this happened January of 2021, you know, and 
we've have a lot of convictions and they're moving up and we're getting more information out every day. So two pop culture references I'll make now. One is Drake and the other is Spike Lee. Drake is we started from the bottom. Now we're here and we've, and we are here after 14 months, the Washington post is reporting as you've just said, that, that there is a substantial expansion of a criminal investigation led by the Department of Justice into the planning and to the operational aspects of the ellipse rally, which led to the insurrection, including the involvement of other governmental officials close to Trump. And they're also investigating the fake elector scheme and the VIPs that attended at the rally as they move closer to both members of Congress and the executive branch. So to answer the question that was raised three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, if there was a criminal investigation that the Department of Justice was making of Trump and all the people around him at the inner circle, we would have heard about it. There isn't one. There is. There has been. Lisa Monaco came out a month ago and revealed after the fake electors issue with the National Archive submission that they had expanded, they had expand, expanding an investigation means that there is an investigation ongoing that needs to be expanded. It didn't say start an investigation. The Post is reporting and they've seen subpoenas because there is a grand jury that has been in panel that is just now getting some press in Washington, D.C. by the Department of Justice, by Maine Justice, on these very issues. They brought people in to testify in front of that. They've issued subpoenas on behalf of the grand jury. So we, we've entered a critical new phase. I don't know if this is the third quarter of a four quarter game, but we are moving into a new phase parallel to what's going on with the phases that are now moving aggressively in the Jan 6 committee, which is also make, turning in to a new phase with, with Jared uh, Kushner testifying ver you know, by Zoom yesterday in front of the Jan 6 committee without any preconditions about his role. Remember, Ginny Thomas had a note to Meadows that's been revealed to the Jan 6 committee saying, Jared this and Jared that, showing a connectivity with Jared Kushner. So all of these things are moving parallel. And the Spike Lee doctrine, which is what Merrick Garland said during his, his interview was, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to take take the investigation where it leads. And he had a great quote in there that reminds you that we have an adult in Merrick Garland. I know I recently came out and said, and I am getting impatient. Let's be honest. We have a federal judge who just said our, our, our former president is a criminal. He said, <laughs> to paraphrase Garland, the best way to undermine an investigation is to say things about it, about how things are going concerning it. So he is very tight-lipped. People should not confuse his reticence to comment on an ongoing, substantially expanded investigation, criminal investigation, as meaning he's not doing anything and the Department of Justice is not doing anything. You and I will follow this, but the Jan 6 committee originally said they were going to make their presentation to the American public in May. That may slip a bit. Maybe it'll be June. But there's going to be a lot for you and me to cover as we get through the spring and the summer with the Department of Justice parallel to the Jan 6 committee. I'm going to have to tell Spike Lee next time I see him that you gave him the shout out on the Legal AF. Special shout out to Spike, who's directing our Colin Kaepernick documentary. I've had the honor and privilege of hanging out with Spike over a number of days while I was out in uh, Brooklyn. That was my softball. 
We 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 were shooting, but how about Drake? You don't have any you don't have any personal connectivity to Drake? What about Drake? (laughs) But but shout out to uh, (laughs) shout out to Spike. Shout out to Drake. I'm 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 a Drake fan. And also shout out to the Midas Touch merch store. Go to store.midastouch.com. You can check out legal AF gear there, legal AF mugs, Midas Touch gear, Midas Touch mugs. We've got a ton of great stuff there from bracelets to t-shirts things heading into the summer. That's store.midastouch.com. Head there now. And Popak and I are practicing litigators. And so if you've been injured, whether that's, uh, you know, your injury is a breach of contract, whether you're a victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault, whether there's a business dispute, a big complex business dispute, potential class action cases, um, whether there's even a you know you know serious car injury or things like that, like Popak and I will take a look. If we're not the right lawyers for it, you know we have a good network of lawyers who we work with who we can help you know refer the cases to and try to bring them to the right people. Um, we get lots of calls from the Midas Mighty, and we're always happy to help and try to find the time to help. You can email me at ben at midastouch.com, ben at m e i d a s t o u c h, and you could email. Popak at mpopak at zplaw.com mpopak at zplaw.com we may need to create a Midas Touch account for you Popak special thanks to all of our sponsors on the pod today Athletic Greens and Lightstream use those codes legal AF there we will see you next time on legal AF where we break down the consequential legal news of the week of the month of the year of our day in ways you could understand take out there continue to fight with truth and fight for our democracy popak always a pleasure joining you each weekend you too we started from the bottom now we're here now we're here and always just what what was the spike quote be good do what's right no do the right thing do the right thing see you next time on the legal af podcast special shout out to the midas mighty